September 3rd, 2017. At the Pungari nuclear test site, Kim Jong-un was photographed inspecting a silver peanut-shaped device. Surrounded by scientists and dressed like Chairman Mao, the 32-year-old Kim wanted to make it clear that he was giving final approval, not the scientists. Waiting nearby was an ICBM, or Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Once ready, the device would launch a thermonuclear warhead toward North Korea's enemies. That was the dream, the same dream that Kim Jong-un's grandfather had decades earlier. He wanted North Korea to be a nuclear power just like the Soviet Union and the United States. Hours later, seismic sensors suddenly went wild. A 6.3 magnitude earthquake had just hit North Korea. Upon further inspection, the earthquake was clearly man-made. Soon, North Korean state media confirmed what intelligence agencies around the world feared. North Korea had just conducted the successful test of a hydrogen bomb. Kim Jong-un beamed with pride. He knew it was only a matter of time until a much more powerful warhead could be attached to a long-range missile. And when it could, Kim would become one of the most powerful men in the world. And one of the most feared. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. On this show, we're going deep into the minds of some of history's most hated despots. This season, we're looking at the Kim family's unique communist dynasty in North Korea. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our sixth and final episode on the Kim Dynasty. Last week, we dove into the rise of Kim Jong-un, the third and current leader of the country. We discussed how Kim came into power after the death of his father, Kim Jong-il, and how he carried on the Kim tradition of ruling with an iron fist using political purges and the gulag system. This week, we'll examine Kim Jong-un's tactical use of cyber terrorism as he simultaneously escalated North Korea's nuclear program and in the process brought North Korea to the brink of war with a historic foe, the United States. In the 1960s, Kim Il-sung's growth policy for North Korea consisted of a two-step plan which would expand the economy and the military. Specifically, he declared that North Korea would one day attain nuclear weapons. Since then, Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il had slowly built up North Korea's nuclear program, but the lack of support from the Soviet Union and China made it a slow process. Now, nearly 50 years later, Kim Jong-un promised the people of North Korea he would finally achieve his grandfather's mission. As far as the economic half of the plan, this meant allowing the Chungmadung marketplace system to flourish. Introduced under Kim Jong-il, 
This system allowed citizens to open up markets to sell goods for profit. The reality was that the profits were few and far between. On a good day, the average citizen made just barely enough to break even for the day. Kim didn't care. He didn't care that the vast majority of his people were dying from malnutrition every year, or that the standard of living had barely increased since he became leader. All Kim ever wanted was to maintain power. And there were two ways to do that. Allow the Danju, or money masters, to exploit the Changmadang system. And expanding the military. With a strong military, Kim would instill fear, not only in the people of North Korea, but also the world. Under Kim Jong-un, the North Korean military had roughly 1.2 million soldiers. As author Chung Min Lee notes, the Korean People's Army, KPA, is one of the most heavily armed militaries in the world. Only China, India, and the United States have larger military forces. Unfortunately for Kim, though, it isn't the most modern. He was determined to fix that by adding nuclear weapons to his arsenal. But in 2011, North Korea was still a long way off. So while the country's top scientists toiled away in secret testing sites, Kim embraced another tactic to show North Korea's might. Cyber terrorism. Cyber warfare has long been of interest to the North Koreans. But in the 1980s, hacking classes were introduced at Miram University, now known as the University of Automation. Over a decade later, with well-educated hackers in their arsenal, Bureau 121 was established as part of the Reconnaissance General Bureau, North Korea's version of the CIA. Bureau 121 employs roughly 6,000 of North Korea's most elite hackers. The hackers are divided into groups, and each group targets one specific country, the most common being the United States and South Korea. However, China, North Korea's only ally, is said to also be a target. In North Korea, hackers aren't recruited, they're cultivated. According to a defector who spoke with the New York Times in 2015, high school students with strong math skills are sent to special universities or military schools to focus solely on computer warfare. In the late 1990s and early 2000s, North Korea focused their hacks entirely on South Korea. Since the Kims weren't able to use nukes to cripple their enemies to the south, the only other option was to steal banking or personal information. But that all changed under the new millennial leader, Kim Jong-un. As someone who grew up surrounded by new technology, Kim understood the importance of cyber warfare. Under his command, hacking and data breaches increased exponentially. South Korea alone is said to experience 1.5 million hacks every day at the hands of North Korea. This equates to about 17 hacks every single second. Outside South Korea, however, no one understood North Korea's hacking abilities. Until November 2014, when Sony Pictures was hit with one of the largest data breaches in internet history. On November 24th, employees of Sony Pictures turned on their computers to find the same image on everyone's screen. A red skeleton and the words, hacked by hashtag GOP. 
Below the skeleton was a line of text stating that their personal information had been breached. If they didn't comply, the information would be leaked. At the time, it was unclear exactly what the hackers wanted them to comply with. The group later identified itself as the Guardians of Peace, a previously unknown hacker group. And as promised, in the weeks that followed, the hacked data was leaked. It included embarrassing emails from some of Sony Pictures' executives, such as producer Scott Rudin calling Angelina Jolie a spoiled brat to Sony chairperson Amy Pascal. By the middle of December, it became obvious that the hack was in response to an upcoming film, The Interview. Starring James Franco and Seth Rogen, The Interview is an action comedy about a journalist and his producer traveling to North Korea to conduct an exclusive interview with Kim Jong-un. The climax of the film features the Kim Jong-un character dying in a fiery explosion to the tune of Katy Perry's Firework. For Kim, such baseless lampooning was a direct threat to the godlike cult of personality that his family had been building for decades. Even suggesting that the son of the shining star could be killed by an American threatened their divinity. It wasn't just a direct assault on Kim Jong-un, but on the entire Kim dynasty. Kim Jong-un denied any responsibility for the hack, though he did praise the hackers. An FBI investigation, however, determined that North Korea was responsible. On December 16th, the hackers threatened to commit a terrorist attack on the scale of 9-11 at any theater that showed the film. Ultimately, Sony Pictures decided not to release the film, bowing to the North Koreans and showing the kind of power Kim had on the world stage. No longer would the Kim dynasty be seen as a joke. Now the rest of the world feared Kim Jong-un's cyber army as much as South Korea did. At 30 years old, Kim Jong-un was able to bend a major American corporation to his will. And he did it all from behind a keyboard. Since then, North Korea has only increased its cyber attacks. In 2016, the Bangladesh Bank's cyber heist stole a total of $81 million via a series of fraudulent financial transfers. In 2017, North Korean hackers unleashed the WannaCry ransomware attack. Over 200,000 Microsoft users discovered their data stolen and held for ransom. To most of the world, Kim Jong-un appeared to be a petty thief. While the Sony Pictures hack ruined the lives of many, no one died from it. It didn't strike fear. More than anything, it was an annoyance. If Kim wanted to up the ante, he was going to have to show everyone that no one is safe. Not even family. Since embarrassing the family name in 2001 after being caught sneaking into Japan, 45-year-old Kim Jong-nam had been living in exile in the gambling city of Macau, not far from Hong Kong. Since then, Jong-nam made sure to keep a low profile. He never considered defecting to a Western country, nor challenge his younger brother's claim to the throne. But that wasn't enough for Kim Jong-un. Around 9 a.m. on February 13, 2017, Jong Nam walked through the Kuala Lumpur International Airport in Malaysia to catch a flight back to Macau. 
His only luggage was a backpack. Suddenly, he was approached by a young Indonesian woman who wiped her hands across his mouth and ran off. No sooner had Jong Nam realized what had happened when a second woman walked up to him and did exactly the same thing. Jong Nam rushed over to airport assistance, physically shaken. As he waited for the ambulance, Jong Nam became drenched in sweat and was unresponsive. In no time at all, an ambulance arrived to take him to a nearby hospital. Unfortunately, he wouldn't make it. Fifteen minutes after being attacked, Kim Jong Nam died of asphyxiation. Jong Nam was attacked with a nerve agent called VX. And both women, one from Vietnam and one from Indonesia, were trained North Korean assassins. Investigators quickly discovered that inside his backpack were 12 vials of atropine, believed to be a possible antidote for VX. To this day, it's unclear why Jong Nam never took them. Naturally, all eyes turned to Kim Jong-un as the perpetrator of the attack, a charge that could never be proven. Though he was almost certainly behind it, the lingering question is why? Why after all these years would Kim Jong-un assassinate his disgraced brother? The most obvious theory was that Jong Nam being alive meant that he was still technically a threat to Jong Un's power. Since Jong Nam was the older brother, perhaps someone would try and install him should a coup ever arise. But if that were the case, how come Jong Un's older brother, Jong Chul, was allowed to live? Kim Jong Un's other older brother, Jong Chul, apparently wasn't a concern. He probably didn't seem like a serious threat. Kim Jong-chul has never concerned himself with politics. All that's really known about him is that he's a big Eric Clapton fan and plays guitar in a local rock band. Kim Jong-nam, meanwhile, liked to talk to journalists and was critical of his brother's regime. In a letter to a Japanese journalist, Jong-nam opined that, I have my doubts about whether a person with only two years of grooming as a leader can govern. This might seem like an innocuous statement to the Western world, but for Kim Jong-un, such talk could be construed as blasphemy. Another possible explanation for Jong Nam's death was that he had become an informant for the CIA. Both the Wall Street Journal and Anna Fifield assert that Kim Jong Nam provided information to CIA handlers in Malaysia and Singapore. To what extent is unclear? and the CIA refuses to confirm whether the claim is true. What the assassination of Kim Jong-nam confirmed was that the 33-year-old dictator of North Korea could reach anyone, anywhere. International boundaries be damned. And while the world condemned Kim's brazen act of violence, no real repercussions came. In fact, the death of Kim Jong-nam seemingly faded from the headlines. Instead, it was replaced by something even more disturbing coming out of North Korea. Kim Jong-un was on the cusp of obtaining nuclear weapons. Coming up, North Korea finally achieves the unthinkable while once again on the brink of war with the United States. Now back to the story. The Kim dynasty has always promised, not just to North Koreans, but the world, that it would one day obtain nuclear weapons. 
Kim Il-sung knew that in order to keep up with the world and to be seen as a formidable opponent, he, like the United States, must have nukes. Much of this stems from the fact that during the Korean War, the United States dropped an overwhelming amount of bombs on North Korea, enough to level entire villages. One report claims that the U.S. destroyed roughly 85% of the structures in the country. And when the war ended, Kim Il-sung vowed to have enough weapons to prevent such destruction again. Unfortunately for Kim Il-sung, neither the Soviet Union nor China offered to help him with his mission. Eventually, the Soviets did agree to help train North Korean scientists in developing nuclear energy for peaceful purposes like agriculture. But it was on Kim to figure out how to weaponize the tech. Under Kim Jong-il, North Korea had only conducted a handful of nuclear and missile tests, each to some varying degree of success. However, the very fact that North Korea was testing put the world on edge. Much of this had to do with the fact that they were cagey about the purposes of their nuclear reactors, as well as leaving the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 2003. By withdrawing from the NPT, North Korea was closing itself off from inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency, a group that promotes peaceful energy programs. Now, free of international restrictions, North Korea could test out in the open. Kim Jong-un continued to brag about North Korea's nuclear capability. But like his father and grandfather before him, it seemed like mostly just talk. Intelligence communities around the world seemed to agree that North Korea was still years away from launching an ICBM. Intelligence communities around the world seemed to agree that North Korea was still years away from launching an ICBM at another country. For example, in April 2012, North Korea attempted to launch a weather satellite into orbit. But the rockets only flew for 90 seconds before fizzling out. If they couldn't get a weather satellite in the air, how could they launch a nuclear missile? But Kim Jong-un was undeterred. Under his rule, the North Korean nuclear program accelerated like never before. With each nuclear test, he was determined to prove that he should be taken seriously as a world leader. And by 2016, it seemed as if he was getting close to his goal. In September 2016, North Korea conducted its fifth underground nuclear test. It produced a magnitude 5.3 earthquake, the most powerful blast to come out of North Korea. This test seemed to signal that he was getting close, very close, to creating a weapon that could do serious damage. Missile tests throughout the spring of 2017 only seemed to confirm those suspicions. Not only was Kim about to create a nuclear warhead, but he was nearing the capability to attach it to a long-range missile. And once that happened, what then? Would Kim actually launch a nuclear missile at one of his enemies? A nuclear war would almost certainly lead to North Korea's destruction. The United States and South Korea would win, and at a massive cost to all involved. Experts believe that casualties in South Korea would be high, possibly a million depending on where Kim dropped his bombs. 
To avoid that outcome, the United States had relied heavily on sanctions and diplomacy to keep tensions under control. But in the summer of 2017, diplomacy went out the window. On July 4, 2017, North Korea had tested its first intercontinental missile. The rocket only flew 580 miles that first time, but a few weeks later, they conducted a second test. This one traveled roughly 2,300 miles into the sky before crashing into the Sea of Japan 620 miles away. This was, by and large, the most successful missile launch to date. And while the UN responded with more economic sanctions on North Korea, the newly elected President Donald Trump responded personally. Trump promised to bring fire and fury to North Korea should they attack the United States. Kim responded by threatening to launch a missile at the U.S. territory of Guam. For weeks, the two men went back and forth like this. Kim always upped the ante by testing a missile near Japan, dipping his toes in the water to see how far he could push the new U.S. president. In the end, though, it only led to name-calling. President Trump branded Kim a madman, a nutjob, and of course, little rocket man. One has to wonder if Kim Jong-un is as crazy as they said. Perhaps he was only feigning his madness to show off his strength, a tactic Richard Nixon used during the Vietnam War. Nixon wanted the North Vietnamese to think he had come to a point that he would do anything, anything to bring an end to the war, including using nuclear weapons. By letting it slip that Nixon was a madman and willing to go to such extremes, it was believed that within days, Ho Chi Minh would want a quick and speedy end to the war. It's possible that Kim is employing the same strategy. If he appears like a loose cannon, capable and willing to drop a nuclear weapon, then perhaps he can force his enemies to the negotiating table, perhaps even remove some of the sanctions on North Korea. American intelligence suggests that Kim may not be as mad as he portrays. The consensus seems to be that he's actually a rational actor whose sole goal in life is to hold on to his power. CIA official Yang Suk Lee is quoted as saying that Kim wants to rule for a long time and die peacefully in his own bed. In that case, there's little to no chance Kim would actually use his weapons. A nuclear war would lead to the total annihilation of North Korea. The nukes, more than anything, are an insurance policy. Many believe that the memory of Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi weighs heavily on Kim. In 2003, after years of sanctions and pressure from the Western world, Gaddafi gave up his nuclear program. Less than a decade later, NATO-backed rebels overthrew Gaddafi, ending his 40-year reign. It's widely speculated that Kim believes the same thing would happen to him if he were to give up on his nuclear program, so he refuses to show any sign of backing down. The fall of 2017 proved to be one of the strained moments in the history between the U.S. and North Korea. At the beginning of September, North Korea conducted its sixth nuclear test. A few weeks later, Trump addressed the United Nations and announced that if the United States was forced to defend itself, it would totally destroy North Korea. Days later, Kim vowed to make Trump pay for his speech. With each passing day, 
it appeared as if war was inevitable. In South Korea and Japan, military exercises were ramped up. Guam and Hawaii were put on alert. Even China decided to take a hard line against North Korea by obstructing trade in and out of the country. Their reasoning was to avoid getting on the United States' bad side. One thing was for sure. Kim Jong-un had finally amassed the nuclear arsenal he'd sought for so long. In his book, The Hermit King, Chung Min Lee writes that by the beginning of 2018, North Korea had at least six ICBMs, an unknown number of intermediate-range ballistic missiles, about 10 medium-range ballistic missiles, and some 30 short-range ballistic missiles. Kim Jong-un had achieved something neither his father nor his grandfather had been able to do. He made the entire world fear North Korea. For nearly 70 years, the Kims had been the laughingstocks of the world, eccentrics living on a pipe dream. But now, the pipe dream had become a reality. North Korea was a nuclear-armed state. Their weapons might not be enough to win a war against the United States, but they would most certainly do damage. Millions of lives would be lost, and the world would never be the same. Coming up, Kim Jong-un shocks the world with his sudden change in diplomatic strategy. Now, back to the show. By the start of 2018, 32-year-old North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un had achieved what his father and grandfather had so desperately desired, obtaining nuclear weapons. But in the process, Kim brought his country to the brink of nuclear war with the United States. No one knew what 2018 was going to bring. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, Kim reversed course. Sort of. On January 1st, 2018, Kim delivered his annual New Year's Day speech. In it, he proclaimed that North Korea was going to accelerate its production of missiles and warheads. If war broke out, North Korea would be capable of thwarting and countering any nuclear threats from the United States. But in the same speech, Kim offered an olive branch to South Korea. Kim announced that he was willing to send delegates to the South to discuss North Korea's participation in the upcoming Winter Olympics. Coincidentally, the Games were being held in Seoul. On January 9th, leaders from North and South Korea met for the first time since 2015. While talk of denuclearization was off the table, both sides agreed to reopen a military hotline between the two countries and North Korea would be allowed to send athletes to participate in the Olympic Games. On February 9, 2018, Kim Jong-un sent his younger sister, Kim Yo-jong, as his representative to the opening ceremony of Winter Olympics. The decision to send her was clearly a calculated move. She was smart, diplomatic, and driven to keep her family in power. Unlike her brother, Yo Jong presented herself as the adult in the room. The result was a diplomatic coup for the North Koreans. Not only did Yo Jong captivate the media just by showing up, but she made an effort to show goodwill towards the South Koreans. She stood when their anthem played, which would have been considered a crime in North Korea. 
During the games, Yo Jong personally delivered an invitation to South Korean President Moon Jae-in to meet with Kim Jong-un. Such a proposition was unthinkable just a year ago. What exactly was Kim up to? In Kim's estimation, the successful 2017 nuclear tests had shown the world that he had the military might to back up his tough rhetoric. Now that he was no longer an international joke, he had more leverage to negotiate, and he needed to negotiate. Although Kim had promised to expand the economy and the nuclear program at the same time, the North Korean economy was growing at a sluggish pace. In order for the country to actually flourish, or at least to pull its citizens out of poverty, it needed economic relations with the other developed countries around the world. Kim had spent the past six years alienating himself from all of those countries. Now, it was time to show the world that he wasn't just the loose cannon with nukes, but a misunderstood young leader looking to develop his country. The first step was to fix relations with the South. Anna Fifield believes that the recent election of Moon Jae-in may have created an opportunity for such negotiations. Compared to his predecessor, Moon was more willing to engage with North Korea. Instead of trying to beat them over the head with economic and financial sanctions, as the previous president had, Moon sought a dialogue. Perhaps Kim believed that if he was able to forge a relationship with Moon, Moon could convince Western leaders to ease up on economic sanctions. Just by sending the invitation, Kim was showing the world that he was serious about making peace. The gesture worked. On April 27, 2018, Kim Jong-un walked across the demilitarized zone in Panmunjom and shook hands with Moon Jae-in. Both men were all smiles as Kim, for the first time in his life, entered South Korea. A few minutes later, the two men passed over the 38th parallel and briefly entered the North. The historic summit was only the third time both countries had officially sat down and met. When it ended, it appeared as if both sides were on the road for lasting peace. This summit would be the first of many. Together, they announced a plan to work on peace, especially when it came to preventing war on the Korean Peninsula. For Kim, he'd overcome a major hurdle on his sudden diplomatic mission. The next stop, China. Around this same time, Kim also embarked on a plan to repair relations with North Korea's only ally. When Kim became leader, he broke the family custom of paying deference to China. And with each passing year, President Xi Jinping became less and less fond of Kim. China was in a precarious position. North Korea was, and still is, essentially a buffer between them and South Korea. She hated that Kim was testing nuclear weapons, but in order to protect China's interests, he needed to continue to help North Korea economically. That didn't mean she needed to speak to Kim directly. However, after Kim Yo-jong's reception at the Olympics, President Xi believed that perhaps Kim had begun to mature. Maybe it was time to invite Kim to China. Kim made the historic trip to Beijing to sit down with President Xi in the spring of 2018. It was the first time Kim had left North Korea since becoming leader. 
Though there was a long road to make up for lost time, the iciness between the two authoritarian leaders seemed to have thawed. The final hurdle in this diplomatic marathon was the United States. Less than a month later, Trump agreed to meet with Kim. On June 12, 2018, Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump sat down in Singapore for the historic summit. It was the first time that sitting leaders from the two countries had met. After a series of meetings between the two men and their respective advisors, both made a joint announcement that gave American officials cause for concern. Without warning, Trump announced that the U.S. would cease its military exercises in South Korea. War games, as Trump called them. Trump justified his actions as saving money. In reality, this was a clear concession to Kim, who viewed the exercises as a provocation. But the biggest revelation? No announcement of North Korean denuclearization. Kim never agreed to stop his military exercises or to give up his nuclear program. When the summit ended, the only real results were the cancellation of the U.S.-South Korea military exercises. Though the victory was minor, Kim walked out of Singapore the clear winner. News outlets around the United States criticized the summit as legitimizing the murderous dictator. By meeting with Kim, Trump essentially elevated him to the same status as any other leader, despite the fact that he had and still has hundreds of thousands of innocent citizens toiling away in gulags. The same could be said about South Korean President Moon. He shook hands and crossed the 38th parallel with Kim, symbolizing a unity of sorts. While such criticisms aren't without merit, it's possible that in order to stave off nuclear war, symbolic concessions such as shaking hands and smiling are a small price to pay. To that end, Trump contends that Kim said he was going to denuclearize the country. This is partially true. There hasn't been a nuclear test since September 2017. But that didn't mean they would stop testing missiles. In the spring of 2019, after a year of showing the world that he wasn't a crazed rocket man, Kim Jong-un resumed his missile tests. While the majority of these are short-range missiles, North Korea continuously threatens to return to long-range testing. Much of this depends on how harsh the international response is toward the nuclear program at any given time. The irony, of course, is that with each test, new economic and financial sanctions are levied. The hope is that by tightening Kim's budget, one day he'll no longer be able to pay for his nuclear program. Recent sanctions haven't just targeted trade, but also members of the elite, the Danju, who fill Kim's coffers. The North Korean economy has definitely floundered with the sanctions. Numbers are difficult to come by, but on average, North Korea's economy grows about 1% a year, though in 2018, it contracted by about 4%. The United States, by comparison, teeters between 2 and 3% growth in recent years. But the U.S.'s 2019 GDP was over 21 trillion U.S. dollars. North Korea's was only 18 billion. There's debate as to whether or not the sanctions actually work, since Kim continues to go through with his tests anyway. But outside of open conflict, 
it appears as if the sanctions are the only real option for foreign powers. On the other side of the coin, why does Kim continue to test the world's patience? For a man who claimed at the beginning of his reign that he was going to bring prosperity to the people, why does he choose to purposely provoke the world into punishing them? Because these sanctions hurt the common people more than they hurt Kim, a man whose coffers are filled with bribery and theft. Every decision and action he takes is an attempt to make sure that his reign as leader is a long one, like his grandfather's. What the future holds for North Korea rests entirely on Kim Jong-un's shoulders. Will he eventually loosen his grip and allow the people to prosper? Will the socialist paradise that Kim Il-sung prophesied ever come to fruition? More importantly, what happens to North Korea if something happens to Kim? For years, reports have trickled through about Kim's considerable health problems. Since taking control, Kim has gained considerable weight due to stress eating and little to no exercise. He's also known to be a notorious chain smoker. At the time of recording, news reports cannot verify Kim Jong-un's health status. And if he were to suffer an early death, it's not clear who would take over. Would it be the Eric Clapton-loving brother, Jang Chul? Their diplomatic sister, Kim Yo-jang? Or maybe even one of Kim Jong-un's own children? The truth is, we just don't know. As we've seen, the Kim family seems to make up the rules as they go along. But somehow, it always works. After three generations, their regime is still standing. We can only hope that whatever comes next, it brings peace for the world and freedom for the people of North Korea. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll begin a new season diving into the world of African warlords. We'll start with Idi Amin, often known as the Butcher of Uganda. Among the many sources we used in our research for today's story, we found Anna Fifield's The Great Successor and Chung Min Lee's The Hermit King to be particularly helpful. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Richard Rossner and Kate Leonard. <laughs>